thank you once again for meeting with us today and for you've given us a tour of the Dream Center and thank you for sharing all that with us. We've heard and most people have heard a lot of your story and a lot of your story was negative and you just dealt with so much difficulty in your life. But we also want to focus on a little bit of your life before uh, some of these really horrific things happened to you and kind of share maybe the side of your story that people don't normally hear. Okay. So, um, my life, so before, like before the trauma or after the trauma? Well, maybe both. How was your upbringing? So my upbringing was around Warren Jess my, my whole life. Oh, okay. Pretty much because he was in Sandy, Utah. And so a lot of people down here will tell their stories. And they're like, when Warren, when the Jeffs came, you know, it kind of blew it apart. Right. But that's not my story. My story is more, he was my principal. I went to sixth grade. My first grade teacher was um, his first wife. So my family was a really big believer in Warren Jess my whole life. So I think back on like camping, there was good memories, but like most of my good memories, I was entangled with trauma. So it's, I'm still feeling like trying to find that mm -hmm. positive side to it. I know I will get more positive over time as much as, you know, because I am getting more into the positive phase of telling, mm -hmm. you know, I don't have to tell the same facts over and over right. about the trauma because I have foundation. The documentary does that now. But right now in my phase of story, like it's hard to distinguish between what was trauma and what wasn't because I had bullies in my family and stuff. Oh, wow. So I see, and this may have been shown in one of the shows you've been on, but I didn't realize, or I guess I had forgotten that your life began in yeah. under the control of Warren and being prepped for him and, and yeah. all of that. Yeah. My family dynamic, well, it talks a little bit about like how I had a horrific experience at eight years old. That was um, when the baptism age is. So I don't know exactly, like it's blurred in my mind. I can't, I know I was around eight because every time it was brought up later in my life, the bullies in my family were like, you're eight, you're eight, you're eight. So I think I was actually targeted because I got baptized. And so that's what I really believe. So like when that happened, because it changed my whole life my whole dynamic in my family. I had these siblings older than me that had guilty consciences. Even though they were little children, they were still judged as adults because of the being older than eight years old. They weren't, they were like 12 and 10. So they shouldn't have been judged that harsh, but they were, and it carried with them into even nowadays. So um, it just changed. I had to learn to accept that. It wasn't, they weren't going to change because they didn't know how to change, you know. So they weren't given tools like therapy and things that we, and, and I can say that both of them have left the church now, but they still won't talk to me. And I don't know if we'll ever get there because of the trauma factors. And also my mother was kind of, she wasn't really mean to me, but she always felt like, she always treated me like, like she was sad. Um, like behind her feelings behind it was sad because it was neglect because she already knew about the experience before I was involved in it. So they had already got there talking to my older siblings and they brought me in probably to take the blame. So that's how I see it now. At the time, I didn't understand it. I just tattled. And then it was put on me because mother didn't want to take the blame because she would have lost us all in the church. So yeah, it was very horrific. My whole life I had my mother who was kind of just disassociate every time it had to do with me. And then I had these two bullies that were just like, it was you, it was you, it was you. They didn't want me to know the rest of the story. Wow. So how how many kids were in your family growing up? Like, how, what we was your... had, 
we had father had 14 children and that's not a big family in polygamy right but i was number 11. one of the things also was because i was so scared i was always getting blamed for things i didn't want to cross the line so that's how it segues into like warren jess it's because a lot of people would they would the bullies would say look she's trying to be so good that she wants to marry warren jess mm. and i didn't know how to get out of that i didn't know how to express myself i didn't know how to tell anybody that's not really the case i just don't dare do anything wrong because i'm going to get kicked out of the church but they're over there flirting with people and the dating and you know all these other things and and i i didn't ever try because i was too scared mm. they were older than me they yeah yeah, and, and with so much blame being put on you at a young age too you must have been terrified <laughs> yeah that, i was terrified you know yeah. being blamed for so many things to then you know do anything wrong who knows what would happen so that i can understand yeah. where you're coming from yeah and so a lot of people who knew me as a child would think well maybe their narrative was true but mm. honestly i just and i and my sister you know married warren before me so she, I knew a lot about his family before that time ever even came in my life. I was terrified of marrying Warren because of my heritage. So like my, my mother's side, the Keats joined when I was, when my mother was four. So she was basically raised in the church, but they were converts. And then my father's, my grandparents on my father's side were kicked out of the church when I was 13 years old. Wow. So there was a break in the chain. Mm -hmm. So like, I know that wasn't a common factor, you know, talked about really commonly, but I knew enough about Warren Jess family that it factored in. Like they wouldn't say it was a lot of brainwashing, more brainwashing. If you have seven generations in the church, they would say you were more educated. You were more, you know, mm. but it basically was more brainwashing. Yeah. <laughs> Deeper into it, right? So, yeah. So for me, um, I was terrified of going to that family. I actually mentioned it to one of my friends. I told them how a little bit, because I had a friend that was Meryl Jess's daughter. And I told her one time, I'm like, I'm terrified. And she's like, well, that would be such an honor. And then I thought about it after. And I'm like, oh, that she would say that because she didn't have that problem. Right. And it, we both actually did marry Warren later. So, wow. Yeah. Did Warren end up picking a lot of the young girls that had been in the school? Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Underneath him? Um, I, As I think that, like, my understanding of it is there was quite a bit of people with seven generations. That was a really common one. Uh, or a similar, you know, like several generations. And if he did pick somebody who wasn't, it was usually somebody he knew pretty well. So like for me and my sister, you know, we didn't have that, but like, I think he knew us pretty well. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I always saw it. it was like, and then when I was 14, I went and stayed at Ruland's house with my sister for a week. My mother organized it all and told me I was going over there to stay. <laughs> and I went over there and it was fine. It's just the family said, whenever I would walk up and shake Ruland's hand and Warren's hand after the meal, then a lot of the wives, when I married Warren, they're like, yeah, we knew since you were 14, you were coming in our family because of the way they treated you. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So the thing that you were afraid of most yeah. ended up coming, coming about. And I don't know all the reasons why, but there were factors. 
that were fed. It's probably on both sides because he probably heard about the stories yeah. that I was so righteous, but he didn't understand that I didn't dare cross the line, you know. So probably on both sides, it, it factored into it. But I was terrified the whole time. Yeah. And I had a friend, I had a schoolmate who was a cook who uh, left the church when she was 14. And in a media interview, she said she was afraid that she was being groomed to marry Warren. Mm. And my family, my bullies, laughed at her and said she was never going to. She should have just stayed it out. And so in my mind, I made a commitment that I needed to. I needed to at least find out if I was just being scared for no reason. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it wasn't for no reason. So, yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, obviously, like you said, you, we've heard so much of the, the trauma yeah. of being married to yeah. Warren. So we won't make you relive that. But I will say, after all that coming out from the other side, and we have some people that I'm sure, and I'm curious as well, what were some of the things that led to you being able to heal and the positive things that have been able to happen. Obviously, you're making huge positive impacts on so many uh -huh. people now, which is just so amazing. But what kind of journey was it for you to be able to get to that place to help the other people the way you do? So after I went to Tennessee, I actually loved it in Tennessee. I, I, they really helped me a lot. I did have PTSD more at that time frame in my life. Right now, it's been like six years since I've even had a, been in the hospital for PTSD. Oh, wow. So like, yeah. So in Tennessee, they did a really big service to just stay at it with me and just help me and help me and help me. And I do have friends still there. And my number is still a Tennessee number because I'm like, I don't want to lose my friends in Tennessee because they made played such a big role in my healing. Yeah. So what? why Tennessee, I guess? What, what took you there and what was the Tennessee experience? So when I first escaped, I was in survival mode because they were hunting me. They were, they were, my mother was actually told to, I guess she was told to tell people that. I, she had custody of me mm. and it wasn't true and and my adoptive mom asked her for the paperwork because I was saying it wasn't true and they didn't have the paperwork done mm. so they figured that out so then she's like she's 26 you know she's gone <laughs> mm. and so it was a it was actually holding out help that it was holding out help and shield and refuge that were helping me at the time when I found the family in Tennessee. I think it was Holding Out Help wanted me to go to Boston or something. And then um, Children Refuge found the family in Tennessee. And I chose that family because of the, the weather. <laughs> you know, it wasn't. Make, makes sense. <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> yeah. It was warm, you know, warm or something. So anyway, so I ended up in Tennessee. And I ended up in some domestic violence shelters. I actually called ahead of time and said, will you take me on the first case, not on a second case? Like, even if it's been six months, will you still take me on this national story, you know, <laughs> because I, I might need that support. And I ended up going to a domestic violence shelter, not because of the family, really. It was more about they couldn't handle me because I was having PTSD episodes and they weren't prepared for that. They weren't, they didn't know a lot about medical. So I ended up in domestic violence shelters where I was, I was going through psychosis and stuff. So like, they would they put me in a room that had another room next to it and they had a divider in the middle and then yeah outside the room was a children's room and they left the other room empty so the children would come in and look over the divider and asked if i got food that day and stuff and it helped because children have a different dynamic than adults right adults um i would be scared of and stuff sometimes for no reason because i had so much ptsd i was like well it wasn't no reason but it was it was in my mind i was like are they after me? Are they around? You know, all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, the children didn't have that. So I, they would bring me food. And so I would eat. 
and they actually asked me if I wanted to go to the hospital, but I was too scared to go to the hospital too because my ID was all not changed yet. Mm. And they said they wouldn't hold the bed, so I was like, okay, I'm not doing that. You know, what's the difference between their bed and my bed? That's how I saw it at the time. Right. So uh, it, it took me about six months to get constant clarity when I finally got therapy and figured out. And it took about two years to change my identity from with Roger Hull, yeah. my attorney in Utah, who we had to find first because I, I didn't know him. I think he heard about me from my mom that adopted me eventually. So I did change my name to Decker. My, my adoptive family's name is Decker. Mm-hmm. Brielle Decker. I changed my name legally before we got my social and was legally adopted. And they actually legally did the illegal adoption because to change your social, you have to testify in court or you have to do a legal adoption. So we did that. And then I, now I have testified in court. Like last September, I did testify against Warren in federal court and won, of course. But yeah. um, I'm the only eight, like one that was 18. So I was 18 when I married Warren because he became the leader in September. My birthday is in November. I married him in January. So it oh, wasn't wow. that much time. Mm-hmm. Um, in, like I wasn't 12 at the time he became the leader. But, right, right. So I'm the only wife that has testified against Warren that was over 18. So there was one other person in the class action that was also Warren's wife that was an underage friend. Okay. So it was a seven-year filed case. And we we got our time to talk about it. So Good. And it, it finalized about a month ago. I was awarded personally. Me and my husband were awarded $20 million. We don't know if we'll see it. But, wow. yeah. I sure hope you do. Yeah, well, <laughs> or at least some except of it. for it would affect like the other people in the FLDS that are still donating it, to Warren. It would be the community that would end up That's paying for why it because like, he doesn't have the money right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think the credibility things. is good, though, and that's the part I've already done. Yeah, The credibility is huge to be able to know that, you know, when I ta- tell my story, people, you know, even out in the world, you know, they have a better, more respect if it's something that the courts have already gone through. Yeah. yeah. No, and that's that's good. That's nice that you've been able to come out and testify against him now publicly like that. Yeah. yeah. And I think it was really needed because at the time when his case went through, I was still trapped in there. So like there was no way for me to to testify against him at the time when he was put in, life, in prison for life. And also I think my documentary that came out in January will be a staple for a lot of people for a while because... A lot of people question if it was Warren at all. They're mm-hmm. like, was it Lyle or was it um, Sam Bateman or some other person who is in the middle, a bishop or something like that, who mm-hmm. actually fulfilled the request, you know? Mm-hmm. They don't all understand that a lot of this abuse actually came from Warren because they're like, Warren was so nice. His trainings were so positive, but he didn't live that way. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have direct experiences with Warren all the time, sometimes you won't recognize that. And that, I didn't recognize it. I didn't have direct. Yeah. I mean, I saw the Jeff's family probably more than the average person because one of my sisters married Rulin Jeff's. Yeah. And then after he died, she was sent to different places. But I always assumed Warren was this really nice, amazing person because I didn't get to yeah. see what the, the kind of person he was behind closed doors. Yeah. And he really, he really practiced that. Mm. He really didn't want people to see. And he didn't, even to his own family, like he, he didn't like openly show the rest of the family what was going on with one person. He, he liked to put like these, ha- all these houses in hiding. Mm-hmm. They're like the middle ground house. So like they had the left behind is here. 
than the elite group. They laugh at that, but like it really was the people that were worthy. And then if you started to struggle in those compounds, he made a middle house because he didn't want them associating with the left behind people mm. because he didn't want all his information getting around. That was his whole purpose. Wow. And then he had the repentance mission, which was kind of like the house in hiding, but they don't actually hear from Warren. Right. And you ended up there for quite a while. No, I ended up in the house in hiding. In the hiding house. So I would hear from Warren. Oh, okay. But he wouldn't go there. Oh. Like I would hear his trainings. I'd hear, you know, like he'd call houses in hiding. Yeah. The amount of separation. And there were still probably a lot of women in each one because he had so many wives, right? Yeah. So, and he did that on purpose sometimes, especially when he went to prison. I feel like he, he would try to tailor to find out who's telling the truth and who's not. And he also had a lot of reporting going to him all the time. So he can kind of gauge what's actually happening in each house. And if he needs to pull somebody out and put somebody else in, a lot of gaslighting is really, really, really possible with that much control. Oh, yeah. Where you live, who you live with, what food goes in the house, what tools you're able to do. So he'll tell you to sell, but you don't have a sewing machine. You know, like your sewing machine's still at the other location. And you have to convince the caretaker by by whatever you have to do to be able to get the tools that you need to fulfill the request that he gave you so you don't get more punishments. Like it was pretty intense in my situation. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Command you to do something and then, and, and then you didn't have the tools to do it. So yeah. then you had to prove yourself worthy to even get the tools to then fulfill the commandment, which yeah. was, oh But my for God. me, I was really abused. Like I wasn't, it wasn't a normal case for me. I was targeted. I was like the example of what not. Right. Yeah. And, and we see a lot yeah. of this in your documentary that came yeah. out. And yeah. and that's, man, We I'm sure you could talk for years <laughs> about yeah. everything that you dealt with in, during those times. But yeah. So after I left, went to Tennessee. I loved it there. I was there for two years. And actually, when they changed my social, they didn't change my SSI in the same month. And at that time, I had SSI. I don't anymore because I work at the Dream Center. But because I couldn't pay my rent for a month, they were still going to do it, but it would be too late after my rent was due. So I called my attorney, Roger, and I was like, Roger, what should I do? You know, I don't know how to pay my rent, you know, and he's like, can they speed it up? I was asking if they could speed up the process. He's like, well, it's interesting because I just had somebody walk in my office who had, he was a XFLES member who became a pilot and hand, handed me crisis airplane tickets and said, if anybody's in crisis, tell them the creek is changing and to come home. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That so, just gave me chills. Yeah. So I actually decided to just, I, I found an XFLES person in Salt Lake that took me in. Like, it was a friend of my mom's. And by that time, I was legally adopted. So, like, I flew home to Salt Lake and found out, like, within like six months about this house, the Dream Center, like Warren's house, and was able to apply for that with the UEP, the landowners. And I wasn't a legal wife, so if I went through court, it would have never worked for me. But the UEP was now owned by mostly ex-FLDS, so they understood that I was once more a just wife, mm. and they honored that, and they awarded me the house. That's yeah. a big deal. Like, I don't know yeah. that people understand how big of a deal it was <laughs> to actually be able to take over Warren's old house. Right? Yeah. I mean, that, you can't just walk in and say, oh, I want that house. Okay, here we go. Thank no. you. So what was, that, what was that process like for you? It was pretty um, interesting, like at that time. So there was only one person I think who's ever won a court case against UEP. So that wasn't really something I wanted to try. I was more open to any opportunity they would give me, any discount, anything they would work with me on. So they actually didn't, they kind of gave me a discount, but like 
in the end, I found out that all the real houses were similar. But it didn't really matter. I just took the opportunity they placed before me and hunted. They gave me the keys on Thanksgiving Day. So February, I applied in 2016. Thanksgiving Day, they gave me the keys. I had three months to pay the back taxes, which were like $50,000. And I want SSI. So, like, <laughs> you know, so I'm like, okay. And then during this time frame, I met my husband now and we, we were dating. So when I did have people come through the house, I did tours, like I kind of described was like, and I had people step up and say, we want to do this kind of house or this kind of house. And I was like, no, it has to be the dream. It has to be the dream and frustrated some of the people working with me. But in the end, I was approached by the dream center people. And I was just like, if it's not the dream, I might as well just give it back to the UEP. The UEP actually told me that they would give me another house regardless of what happened to this house because this one was too big for me. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, whatever happens. They didn't kind of, they thought it would kind of flop. In the end, the Dream Center was the dream. And we, we talked with the UEP and made a plan. So it was, a, it was extended like twice because of other people coming forward and researching. But then... When the Dream Center came, then, so it was like from November, the three months was like March 15th. It was June when the Dream Center sat down at the UEP. And it was October of that year, which was 2017, when we actually signed all the paperwork and gave it to the Dream Center. So it isn't mine. It is the Dream Center's building. I work for them. I've worked for them ever since. Um, did salary first three years. Now it's almost, you know, October is right around the corner. <laughs> and it will be three years working on site. And at first I started out with like a little bit of hours because they were like getting used to the concept of me taking on, you know, responsibility and how I'd be treated and all of that. Mm-hmm. Now it, I work 40 hours a week, um, most weeks. Yeah. So every once in a while we'll, you know, go on vacation or something like anybody else. But most of the time I work, they work around my schedule. They'll book me on days that I'm around and, they're really flexible that way. So how did you first hear about the Dream Center? Because you had mentioned there were like a worldwide organization. And how did you know, like, what made you decide that they were the right people to take over? Okay, so the Dream Center, the biggest thing was that they wanted to build a recovery center. That was a passion of mine. I was like, we need that so bad. That's why I went public in the first place was to find a recovery center, you know, some kind of program that would be the program that I wanted, you know, basically that I didn't have. I went to domestic violence shelters that have these deadlines and I was like, I need. So anyway, when I got the house that I did, there was a high profile house. So I did a lot of media and also there was somebody in town that was a Christian already, Brody. I don't know if you know Brody and Liz. But anyway, they asked if they could bring people on tours to the house. I was given free tours of the house too, the whole time. And I said, yes. And they brought tons of people, like all these Christians do all the time. And one, a few of those people actually, um, the first directors, Glenn and Jenna, had just visited the Phoenix Dream Center. They're like, this would be a perfect Dream Center. And one of the maintenance guys at the Phoenix Dream Center was in that same group. And he was, he called them and convinced them with his, you know, enthusiasm. You know, he was so excited about it. When he called them, then the directors now are actually working for the Phoenix Dream Center. So they have 30 years experience working wow. for the in this Uh field and they answered and they're like we're not looking for a rural house you know you know out there and he's like you gotta hear the story and (laughs) then it got transferred to the next person who was brian Steele, and he they said we might as well look at it 
and, and now you see like at the beginning when they first came they're like we're still praying over it i'm like this is the dream if this isn't supposed to be then i'm not supposed to be a part of it and you know and they did say during the licensing process it was pretty tough because there wasn't a lot of licensed buildings in this town they were one of the first ones after warren left you know like to become licensed and also they signed in october it was that november of 2017 that the first election that the mayor donia became xflds in oh, yeah, in Hilda. so there was a lot of things that were counting on happening that did happen so it was a lease to own first mm. when they got their licensing before that he said he would call me up sometimes and say where well, it's in the lazarus file you know it needs to be resurrected if we're actually going to pull this off and then it would be so like I don't know all the details behind all of their experiences between when it when it when they first signed that lease to own and when it got um, licensed, but that was they said they saw miracles in that process too. And how fitting that you kept saying no, this needs to be the dream, and it ended up being the dream center. Yeah, <laughs> that must have been a sign, right? <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, there was a lot of things. So, um, and then when I when I was working, so when I first when I first was looking for a business plan here, we thought of one of the buildings being a daycare. We checked into it and all of that. So daycare is really goes alongside with the Dream Center a lot because the single moms, they come out of the church and then they have this big catch-22 with like getting their own job and having to pay for daycare because all the houses aren't finished in this area and they have to like, you know, they want the government to pay, but the government won't pay if the, if the daycare isn't certified. So then they end up, spending all their money on daycare and it's just kind of a big catch 22. So that's something we're still praying over. It's been several years. We've tried a lot of things. And for a long time, I actually did in-home daycare for a while. I did it for like two years. It just, it was, I mean, it never crashed, but I gave it to somebody else in town. They did it for a year. And now that one has stopped too. Cause it becomes like a charity when the houses aren't completely finished. Right. So spending like, you know, half, I was working at the dream center the whole time too in the evenings doing daycare in the morning like it was yeah, just a lot. yeah too much so i i feel like we're still we still need that though we do have a daycare in centennial um that is only like a year old but it's pretty good oh and this is centennial park over the hill yeah and is that run by centennial park people or is there a reason it's over there yeah but there's also a lot of kids around here so they just even updated their building like got a bigger building because of the demand for how many kids are in this area too even when they leave the church you know they they saw a lot of their kids you know that they they got to figure out yeah. you know what to do so yeah that's another thing that the dream center really wants is to figure out more daycare for this area yeah speaking of things the dream center needs and wants uh, what's a good way for people that want to help out financially how, how can they support this cause so the shortcreekdreamcenter.org does have a donate button. You can also call if you have any questions about like how you want to donate because they do have a wish list. They have they have like the adopt a room program. They have mission crews where you can bring a whole team of people to paint or you know they have a lot of ways actually yeah. to help out. I've met with a couple pastors in Las Vegas that say they have been out here on these mission crews and have helped out. Yeah. So it's nice to see that these people are volunteering and coming and helping and just driving around the town. We're shocked. Melissa and I are shocked to see the improvement just over the last couple of years. It's just amazing to see all the improvements that are happening. Yeah. So I, so that's one project I did was two years. And then I also did peer support specialist. So I do have my license still in that too. I did that for about seven months. And one of my coworkers actually does that full time now. So I did part time at the Dream Center, part time peer support specialist with the same clients. 
and I had two bosses. So now we just kind of switch roles. She she does uh, that full time, and I do Dream Center full time. She was really passionate about that because it's more talking to people and stuff. And I already do a lot of that, so I was like, right. I'll just do the cleaning and all the other stuff when I'm on my you know working for the Dream Center. Then a lot of that is process. Like I have spaces in the day where I'm not talking to somebody where I can like clear my mind mm -hmm. and that helps me a lot so that was seven months of that and now yeah I work full-time for the dream center so yeah it's been it's been a good journey for me I feel like and we have our own house we got it because the UEP did honor the decision they made that no matter if I succeeded at this dream center or not then they would give me another house and they did another house to actually live in to actually live in so my husband and I have a house in Colorado City where it's a fix up too. We are working on it all the time and we've had mission crews there a lot. We have a lot of weeds right now. We feel bad about but they grow so fast. That yeah, we we just yeah, and and as far as like um children and stuff, we you know a lot of people ask me about that. We've never been successful yet. We've had three miscarriages. We're still working on it. We figured out some of it was the doctors and we got more quotes and you know and so we we have a plan but we aren't sure how that's going to go yet i'm 37 so we'll see <laughs> yeah but with the trauma that factored into yeah, it i can only imagine how that would affect every aspect not yeah. just not just emotionally yeah so. and then so we have renters at our house because it's it's like it's not a huge huge house they wouldn't give us a huge huge you know that wouldn't mm -hmm. have been what we needed anyway so it was like it's like about four rooms. Nice. And so you rent some of those rooms out. And yeah. Good. Well, it's been quite the journey for you. And so how do you feel now? And, and, and after everything you've been through and you've been now working with this dream center, you've been living the dream yeah. <laughs> and helping out so many people. How, what's your state of mind now after all these years? I feel like finally I'm going to, like I'm organized. I feel like I'm, I'm planning ahead. Um, I'm getting to some of the trips that we talked about for years and we never did, you know, because I'm planning ahead. And also like, you know, I'm going to go do EMDR, but, um, because that's really important to me, but I never could do it before because I was always so busy in the next project <laughs> that now with my organization with like working just for the dream center, not having two bosses, not trying to run my own company at the same time, you know, like I have a lot more organization. I feel like I'm ready for EMDR now. I have a therapist. I'm just waiting for the, my appointment. So like, I've had a therapist this whole time. I just haven't done EMDR because of my being so frazzled with daily life. You can't do that at the same time. Yeah. I mean, you're not supposed to. <laughs> and then I do a lot of public speaking. I have this ever since the Dream Center. Are you allowed to share about your book? Oh yeah, that's what I was trying to remember. <laughs> yeah, my book is um, almost done i mean we've had an excerpt before in the past put on amazon and we actually took it off because it wasn't it wasn't that good and so if you see that don't be confused <laughs> but my book is going it's not out yet but like it's done we're in the editing phase it will be like three months before that's probably done with beta readers and then we're going into printing so um, I'm excited about that. Look for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited too. So what's the, do you, can you share the title of the book? I can't share the title. Oh, okay. I, launch, I, I was asking too you want much. It to be a, you want it to be a, a bestseller. And when you launch it, 
a big part of it is the title, unfortunately. I, I yeah, can't, that's yeah. just fine. But yeah. we'll look. We'll look for it. We'll look for yeah. it. And yeah, maybe once it's out or something, we can talk more. About and they it. also <laughs> have a musical in the works. Really? Yeah, it's far from where it needs to be, but wow. it's been in the works for about five years. What would this look? What would a musical look like? I'm, it has I'm so a curious. more creative license, and it's more about polygamy. I think. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we will definitely stay in touch because we want all the tea on it. And some of those projects can crash in the middle. Like the documentary, we had a lot of things, but it still came out. So, like, that's the biggest thing is you wanted to just work through those things, but sometimes it's not possible. So it might be a little too early, but like, I, I think, I think it's going pretty well. They have almost all the songs written and music to them. Um, but as far as the narrative in between is what we're working on, and I'm going to be helping with that. So that's wow. fantastic. So you're involved in that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Do you ever feel like you're doing a million things at once? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I do have like, and a lot of opportunities all the time. Mm. But like, I have to like, and I do my research on the ones I want to. But then, most of the time, I I stick to the same path. Mm. So the book was six years in the works, has been right now. The Musicals five and the the documentary came out this year, but it was three before that, so it's actually going to be four in January. So, wow. but it came out after three. So, yeah. yeah. Hey, things are things are happening. They're coming yeah. to an end. Yeah. I have great. a. I write a lot of poetry. I do that just randomly. I can write a poem in fifteen minutes, and I do it to like because I can express myself sometimes a lot better in like metaphorically for some reason. Mm-hmm. But um. I have a song that I, it's a Disney song that I changed the words to. And I did watch um, Little Mermaid and stuff when I was little. You did? Yeah. Okay. So I don't know why, but <laughs> I did. <laughs> so you've always kind of liked Disney films? I like the things. Little Mermaid song because of that whole idea of being trapped. Mm-hmm. I felt that way even as a child. So I wrote different words to it. Oh, wow. wow. We'd be interested to see what that's all about. You want to hear it? Sure. We'd love to. Okay. So it goes. I don't know how a world that makes such wonderful things could be bad. Look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? Identical dresses and patterns that fit. Wouldn't you think I'm the girl, the girl who has everything? Look at the groove. Keeping sweet makes numbness that's true. My identity's fake. Looking around here, you think, wow, she's got everything. I've got needles and pins all of plenty. I've got buttons and zippers and more. You want children? I've got 20. <laughs> but who cares? No big deal. <laughs> I want more. I want to be where I get to choose. I want to wear what I choose to wear. Girls walking around. What do you call Jeans. <laughs> Teaching homeschool if there was the time. Working with business tools, never seeing a dime. Maybe they'll what? Read. (laughs) Out where they roam, out where they dance, out where they play and have fun. Wandering free, wish I could be part of your world what would i give if i could live out in the real world what would i pay to spend a day trying things for the first time bet you out there they understand bet they don't 
punish on demand, scolding cause they're told who and what gets sold. Ready to stand, ready to know what the world knows. Asking my questions and get some answers. What's a color in your hair like? Makeup, what's the word style? When's it my turn? Wouldn't I love, love to explore that world with true freedom? Out of the cage. Wish I was raised part of your world. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I'm all choked up here. Me too. Man, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, it's, it's it, real. <laughs> it's, 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 it's almost too real. <laughs> you watch it, you watch the little mermaid and you think, oh yeah, no, that's, that's that. But after all we know and have experienced in the, in this FLDS religion, man, it's that, uh, touches you when you hear those words. Yeah. A lot of people say it's really powerful with the, with that, that dynamic with the little mermaid dynamic. So mm -hmm. I never wrote those songs till after I left, but like those words, you know, those words to that song. But I, it always hit me hard. That song always hit me hard when I was little. Wow. But probably because of the dynamic I was living in. But yeah. Yeah. Man, I'm glad there's not a camera on my face. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. just so interesting. And, uh, you know, at a young age, we actually were able to watch some movies, as you said, some Disney movies and things. Some families wouldn't allow Little Mermaid, some would, you know, yeah. it just depended on the family. But back when we were little kids, there was, it wasn't quite the same. It was a lot more freedom, but it sounds like for you, it was pretty yeah. intense most of your life. I remember walking outside. I don't remember how old I was, but just standing there wondering if I could run away. Like, I, that's how serious it was for me. Like, I was just dreaming about running away, getting a new family when I was... But I do love my family. It's just the trauma was just too much. Yeah. 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 And we hear that a lot too, where it's this interesting dynamic for just about anyone that when that's all you know, you don't know any better. And yet there's still like a piece of your soul that knows that something's not quite right. You know, you hear a lot of kids or a lot of people that we interview and they talk about that, like being a really young age and thinking of running away or thinking of what it would be like to be a part of the outside world and there's still a piece of just like the human spirit that knows that it deserves to not be abused you know yeah. there's still that piece of it so no matter how much you're brainwashed into it or you're raised in it there's still that piece of of hope as a child yeah, yeah. and they say like in studies children dream like they have that creative side of them still like yeah. it kind of gets pushed away with school a lot of times but they still have it. You just have to find it, you know, when you grow up sometimes. <laughs> well, Brielle, thank you so, so, so much for being here, for taking time out of your day yeah. and being here with us and sharing a little bit of your story. I feel like we've heard for the first time some of your experiences, and that's been so, so wonderful. So thank you. Yeah, sure. I don't always talk about the after, like, so the peer support, the, um, the daycare, like I do sometimes on my Facebook posts, but like most of the time in my interviews, it never, 
it, it just gets to the train center, and then that's all the time we have. So I, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, there's a lot more. You know, the book, the musical, like all these other. I do like public speaking now, which is probably because I've done it so much, but I, I've gotten used to it. Yeah. Good. Well, I'm glad that you're able to do that. Public speaking is one of those things that a lot of people are afraid of. So yeah. congratulations to even be able to do that. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. I, I've uh, At first when I would do it, I would critique myself after was the hardest part for me. For two weeks, I would just be like, oh, did I do it right? Did I say everything I should? You know, like, did they understand? But now it's, you know, every once in a while it'll be like an hour or something, but it's not, it's um, not the same as it was because yeah. I've, you know, I kind of watch my audience and try to say, you know, I, I, I do that naturally. Sometimes I've learned cues and stuff that help me know that they're understanding and, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah. So I don't critique myself so much later because <laughs> I'm like not worried about it anymore. <laughs> Well, before we let you go, if there's somebody out there, and we kind of do this at a lot of the end of our videos, if someone was out there watching today from the FLDS and is seeing this, what would you want to say to them if you felt like they were going to listen? I would say that, you know, there's hope. There, there is hope. You might have to fight for your hope, but like most, even all Americans, most of them have to fight for their hope, unfortunately. Like we have a foundation, which is a huge thing to be able to have freedom and hope. But most of us have to fight for what we actually want. Yeah. I love that's that. Great. Yeah. And that's that's something that I would <laughs> say too. You know, it's you feel hopeless sometimes. Yeah. So I love that. That there is there is hope. There is more to life than what you are being told. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again. And it was so Thanks. nice to meet you in person. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks yes. for this. Thank I, you, I really appreciate you. Guys of coming. course.